Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hello, my name is Jim Capretta. I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We are very pleased today to be having an event centered around the 100th anniversary of the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921. Couldn't let this anniversary go without marking it. It was a very important piece of legislation that changed the trajectory of the federal budget process on a permanent basis. And we're really lucky that we coaxed Professor Roy Myers from the University of Maryland at Baltimore County to join us for the conversation. First, just a minute on the Budget and Accounting Act. Its main features were to create the Bureau of the Budget, which later became the Office of Management and Budget, and the Government Accountability Office, for previously the General Accounting Office. So very much important in terms of its institutional changes that it created in the federal budgeting system. The trajectory of it has been that the budget process has changed quite a bit since then, but the process now is not working very well. And so our conversation today with Professor Myers will center on both the history and enactment of the Budget and Accounting Act, what it has meant to the process, where things have broken down. And lastly, maybe before we conclude, we'll get a word or two in about what we might do to move in a slightly better direction in our federal budgeting practices in the future. Professor Myers is the Professor of Political Science and Affiliate Professor of Public Policy, again, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's been there teaching and doing research since 1990. Prior to that, he spent about a decade at the Congressional Budget Office. He earned his PhD in uh, political science from the University of Michigan in 1988. He's earned in 2018 the recipient of the Aaron Vildosky Award from the Association of Budgeting and Financial Management, which anyone who knows about the political science of studying the budget knows that that's a very prestigious award. He's consulted widely with lots of organizations and taught in various capacities here in the United States and also around the world. He's consulted with the World Bank, Harvard University's budgeting program, Duke University's budgeting program, and many other organizations. He's truly a national expert on this, and so we're terrifically pleased that he was able to join us. Professor Myers, Roy, will make a, a presentation a little bit about where we are with the Budget and Accounting Act, where it came from, how it's operated, and after he concludes, we'll have an opportunity to have a, a bit of a conversation about the topic and where we go from here. So take it away, Professor Myers. Well, thanks a lot, Jim. I really appreciate the invitation and thanks also for rescheduling this when last week I had a bit of a medical issue. It's actually an honor for me to be with you because I really appreciate your work on health budget and health policy. You're one of my go-to sources on the very important topic. So I'm gonna share my screen and go through some PowerPoint slides and then we can talk about how the budget process has evolved since then. So the Budget Accounting Act, this talk is based on an article I wrote about a decade ago with Irene Rubin, who's a retired professor at Northern Illinois and one of the great scholars of public budgeting. The 
The Budget and Accounting Act was proposed actually in 1912, nine years or so before it was adopted. And it was proposed by the Taft Commission. And the Taft Commission was formerly known as the Commission on Economy and Efficiency. So to translate those terms from their early 20th century to now, what they meant by economy was spending cuts. The President Taft wanted to cut the budget. And by efficiency, it meant greater public value from government spending. And the commission was chaired by Frederick Cleveland, along with four other experts. Two of them were Frank Goodnow and William Willoughby, who were public administration luminaries, who helped with congressional passage a decade later, and who founded the Institute for Governmental Research, which later became the Brookings Institution. Now, Cleveland, along with his colleague, William Allen, in New York had pioneered executive budgeting at both the city level and at the state level. And they were head of a group called the Bureau of Municipal Research, which was a very influential think tank back in the beginning of the 20th century. So when the Taft Commission issued its report in 1912, it was called the need for a national budget. And at that time, there was no federal budget at all. It was really not something that didn't exist. And in the commission's report, they argued that greater presidential power over spending would provide greater accountability. And that the mechanism for that particularly would be a technically skilled central budget office, which became the Bureau of the Budget, which would be empowered to review and change agency budget requests before transmission to Congress. That would also limit congressional micromanagement of how agencies could spend the money. That is, it would give the agencies discretion, in particular by substituting presidential priorities over congressional priorities. And the budget process, it was hoped in that case, would not only promote presidential priorities, but also to promote savings and improve performance. And it was particularly desired by its proponents at the time because of a problem that the government had with agencies often spending more than their appropriated amounts. And once they did that, they would come back to Congress asking for what were called deficiency appropriations. These days we call them supplementals. And in some sense, they were viewed as coercive deficiency appropriations. That is, uh, the agency was running out of money part of the way through the budget year and Congress felt as if it just had to appropriate more money. Some of that was the result of out of control spending by the agencies, but other times it was the result of earlier unrealistic cuts by Congress in the requested appropriations for the agencies. So it's a complicated topic, but it, the general assumption was that giving the president authority over the appropriations requests would change that process. It's also important to note that at the time, the appropriations powers were decentralized in Congress. And that was the result of a change in 1885 that shifted some jurisdiction away from the appropriations committees to other committees, such as for agriculture and for rivers and harbors. Those committees felt that the appropriations committee had been too tight with the taxpayer's dollar. And therefore they convinced the rest of the members of Congress to shift authority over spending on those programs away from the appropriations committees to them. 
Now, executive budgeting, as I mentioned, was proposed in 1912, but it wasn't adopted until 1921. And I guess that shouldn't be surprising. We all expect Congress to take a while to adopt new ideas. And particularly in this case, because the executive budget threatened the constitutionally granted power of the purse. I mean, you can go all the way back to Hamilton's service as the treasury secretary, where he wanted to have the treasury review agency spending estimates and Congress said, no way. Plus in 1913, President Taft was no longer president. President Wilson was the president and Congress was in the hand of Democrats. And they had quite different issues that were more important to them than the executive budget, particularly creation of the income tax and of the Federal Reserve System. But then came along World War I in a couple of years and that led to a really massive increase in spending. And Congress responded to it by passing a lot of supplementals. I mean, Wilson came back to the Congress every couple months for supplementals and Congress responded by authorizing spending in lump sum form rather than the traditional line item approach. In other words, it gave a lot of authority to the executive branch, which was a massive shift in tradition. And then armistice, after the armistice, Congress realized it had to modernize the process in particular because it was still kind of leery about giving the executive branch that lump sum authority. And so after World War I closed, after the armistice, Congress started having serious considerations of the executive budget. And there was a House Select Committee on the Budget that drafted executive budget legislation in 1919, but it was not as strong as what Cleveland had wanted, and particularly regarding the organizational structure. So this bill, for example, that led to creation of the government accounting office, general accounting office, had the GAO as being part of the legislative branch rather than as part of the treasury, which is what Cleveland and Taft had wanted. There was a similar special committee in the Senate that passed a somewhat similar bill. And it similarly put the budget bureau not in the White House, but rather in the treasury. And so that was an illustration that Congress felt pretty leery about giving very direct control of the budget power in an organizational sense to the White House. So those two bills were successfully conferenced. And in 1920, they were sent to President Wilson, but he vetoed them. And he vetoed it because he objected to the fact the president couldn't fire the Comptroller General, the head of the GAO. And this is kind of an early case of the unitary executive arguments. But then in 1921, the bill was revised a bit. President Harding signed it. And the, the change made the, the uh, Comptroller General removable by joint resolution. The other thing that Congress did in 1920 is that it, in a, co a companion House resolution, it re-centralized spending powers in the Appropriations Committee. So that's a brief history of the adoption of the process. If you want a longer version of it, there was a conference run this week, and I'm going to mention how to access it in videos in a few minutes. But Jim Saturno, an analyst at the Congressional Research Service, provided a very good and much longer description of the history of the Budget and Accounting Act. So I would highly recommend that in case you're interested, as well as the sources in the article that I mentioned earlier that I co-wrote with Irene Rubin. So how was it implemented? Well, it's of course been a hundred years, so that's a pretty long period. And I'm not gonna describe the whole, the whole hundred years, 
But you know, the budget quickly became a tool used by presidents to promote their priorities. And it grew over time with the recruitment and training of a highly capable staff in the Bureau of the Budget. In that first year, the, the new director of BOB, Charles Dawes, who was a general later became uh, vice president, in fact, won a Nobel Prize later, he really cut back agency spending requests consistent with President Harding's priorities. It was a very spending cut oriented administration. Later, that emphasis shifted from making those big spending cuts to making the government policy process and organizational structure more rational. There was this famous committee, the Brownlow Committee in 1937, formerly called the Committee on Administrative Management, that made a lot of recommendations based on the, the opening statement of their report that the president needed help. And that was certainly the case with the expansion of all these new agencies and programs during the New Deal. And one thing that happened during that time is it shifted the Bureau of the Budget into the executive office of the president from the Treasury building. So you know it moved from the gray building on the east side of the White House to the gray building on the west side of the White House. And, but it, you know, it made it closer to the president in, in that sense. And that continued, that expansion of OMB's power, Bureau of Budget's power expanded over the following decades to the point in the 1970s and 80s when it became very, very powerful. In 1970, it was renamed the Office of Management and Budget. And by that time, it wasn't just in the gray building, but in the so-called red building on, on the 17th street. And that continued through, for example, the Reagan administration with the creation of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, very powerful part of OMB. But at the same time, since the White House itself, the executive office of the president was growing with the Domestic Policy Council and many other units, that generated some competition for OMB and for the budget process itself as a way of setting policy. You know, that might be good or might be bad, depending on the circumstances. In general, though, I think it's fair to say that there have been some pretty positive legacies of the Budget and Accounting Act, and I'd like to focus on five. The first is that, you know, consistent with what Taft and Cleveland wanted, it's the budget is a major vehicle for stating administration priorities. Now, sometimes, of course, those priorities are dead on arrival. They're not expected to be adopted by Congress, but nevertheless, it's an opportunity for the head of the executive branch to make a case. It's also the case though, that the claims by many members of Congress that the budget is dead on arrival is false in the following sense. A tremendous amount of work is put into preparing the budget by the various government departments, by OMB civil servants, and by the political appointees at OMB. And that provides a really massive head start for Congress in considering the appropriations requests, uh, which is a lot of work. The third, and I think probably most important point from my perspective is that the staff of the Office of Management Budget are a national resource. They provide a lot of very valuable analytical support for the president. Now, the old argument is that analysts at the OMB have to have neutral competence or as Paul O'Neill said, neutral brilliance, that is they had to be capable of working for a succession of different partisan administrations, but to give objective advice as much as possible about what is working and what isn't working in the federal 
budget and in federal programs. And I think that's fair to say that that's one of the greatest contributions of the Budget and Accounting Act. Two other things that the Budget and Accounting Act have created is first of all, procedures for central control of agency spending. And that has limited waste, although not eliminated it, but it certainly made it much harder for agencies to engage in spending that's out of control and then present Congress with a bill that has to be paid. And that's done through particularly the apportionment process, which I'll talk about in a minute regarding the downside of the apportionment process. But finally, the Budget and Accounting Act made the government's finances much more transparent. And that's in particularly because the GAO's role is very important in auditing what federal agencies are spending. Now regarding this and particularly how OMB works now, I wanted to recommend a book that was published recently by the Brookings Institution, edited by Bose and Ruta Levigi. And it's a very nice collection of chapters about how OMB works now. I also wanted to mention a chapter in a book that is gonna be released next month, the chapter I wrote about President Trump and the budget. And I'm bringing this up in part to, to mention that the impact of the Budget and Accounting Act varies from administration to administration, depending on the president's proclivities. You know, what I hope is the worst case scenario was the Trump administration, where not only did the president believe that deficits didn't matter, he also believed the budget process itself didn't matter. And where he used uh, budget execution powers regarding Ukraine security assistance, construction for the wall, disaster assistance for Puerto Rico in ways that I think constitute abuse and were ruled so, at least in the case of the Ukraine security assistance by GAO. At the end of the Trump administration, he also suggested that part six of the circular A11, which gives guidance to the agencies about performance management and performance reporting should be not, not uh, dealt with anymore and also suggested that those civil servants in OMB should be put in on a new Schedule F, in effect, making them political appointees at risk for being fired, which I think was a terrible idea. You know, th these kind of actions would have been completely incomprehensible to say President Eisenhower, who relied very heavily on the Bureau of the Budget for running his program. You know, for more on the centennial of the executive budget and the broad range of related topics, I highly recommend you look at some, some videos that will be online next week from a virtual conference that was organized this week by the American Association for Budget and Program Analysis, the National Academy of Public Administration, and the Association for Budgeting and Financial Management. And there are a lot of really good panels there, not only about the history, but about current events and budgeting and about the future as well. Now, getting back to the risk that a president will not live up to the expectations of the executive budgeting model and to conclude this short presentation, I think that it's still good that we have separated institutions sharing the budget power. That is, Congress didn't fully delegate all of its power of the purse to the president in 1921 but it's been shared. In other words, the president has been given a tremendous responsibility, but it's still up to Congress to make many important budgetary decisions. And as Jim mentioned in the intro, the budget process that was envisioned in 1921 has changed dramatically since then, and particularly because of adoption 
of the 1974 Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act. In three years, you know, we might be celebrating more the funeral rather than the golden anniversary of this act because most people believe the process is broken or at least it doesn't work very well. And I think it's fair to say that it's not solely because of congressional problems, but also because of presidential problems as well. In my opinion, we need to work a lot on improving the process. And it might be the case that actually we're in a period now that is somewhat similar to the first two decades of the 20th century when the modern federal budget process was created. That is back then they asked some pretty fundamental questions about how government spending was carried out and how government spending decisions were made. And I think we're in the same situation now. So that's my presentation. I'll turn it back to you, Jim. Great, thank you, Roy. That was terrific and a really great overview of the law and its impact and where it came from and where it's been. So a great baseline of information for, for everyone. Thank you. I have one question going back a little bit on the history and uh, you know, an observation reading your paper and other analyses of where the law came from and how it came about. My one observation I've always had is that it would appear that in the 19th century, in a certain way, Congress had the attitude that in some ways the budget offices and the agencies around the federal executive branch worked for them in a certain way, that they would kind of rely on them for analytical work, almost in a parliamentary type style sense of the, the legislature sort of reaching into the, and having a direct say in executive function, and maybe a little bit of a leftover from sort of how they perceived governance running in their previous lands. And so I'm wondering though, in our constitutional system with the, the two articles, it wasn't inevitable in a certain way that a president eventually would say, hey, wait a second, those folks in the executive branch do work for me. And in a certain way, one way to view the, the Budget and Accounting Act is it kind of asserted more presidential control directly over the folks who work for the president, back to the unitary executive theory. And in a certain way, you know, because they set up the Bureau of the Budget and OMB, all the folks who work in the executive branch in a certain way had to now go through this one office that the president had a little bit of control over, even when it was in the treasury, for their budget requests instead of going directly to the Congress. And it changed the power relationships quite a bit. I'm wondering if, if that rough history comports with how you would see it and, and if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I think you're correct. I mean, first of all, in the 19th century, Congress was very dominant in most respects of policymaking. Although, of course, it also had a lot of internal problems. Just as I mentioned, the question of to what extent should the power of spending be centralized in the Appropriations Committee or decentralized? I mean, Charles Stewart, a political scientist up at MIT, wrote a really excellent book about that, that conflict in the, in the late 19th century. But it, 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 for example, the Appropriations Committee didn't exist until the Civil War. It was the Ways and Means Committee that had all control over spending decisions. But of course, Congress was overwhelmed during the Civil War and decided that it needed to split up the responsibility of the taxing power or taxing and tariff power to more act, be more accurate from the spending power. Now, regarding the inevitability I think you're right in the sense that as government grew, and I think this is probably highlighted by the emphasis I put on World War I and Congress's 
turn towards acknowledging the necessity of an executive budget, that once government activities became so complicated, there needed to be uh, a new organizational structure for, for coordinating government activities that really couldn't be carried out by the Congress given its inherent decentralized, non-hierarchical nature. But I think also it's important to give credit to the progressive movement in its different variants for generating experiments in the cities and counties and then later in the states in developing the budget system where they also borrowed from what public administration experts had learned through their travels in Europe. Some of what was adopted during the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th, 20th century United States was, in court, was brought into the United States, imported in the United States from people who had gone to Germany, who had gone to France, who had gone to the United Kingdom and learned about one of some of the advances there. But some of it was homegrown as well. Some of it was driven by, if you will, upper middle class distaste with corruption from the party machines, whether they were Democratic machines or Republican machines in the cities. And it was consistent with some of the other reforms that took place, such as the secret ballot. Although, of course, one thing we know from the, the adoption of the secret ballot is it greatly, in many senses, disenfranchised a number of people. The, the amount of turnout in elections because of the secret ballot went down dramatically. But you know, if you go to what Frederick Cleveland did in New York, he had a colleague named William Allen, who I mentioned in the intro. And Allen was somebody who was quite different than Frederick Cleveland in that Allen was a small D Democrat. He believed unlike Cleveland, that the solution to the budget problem and to corruption was to get as much democratic small D participation as possible in the process to make the government books much more transparent and particularly to invite many more people to participate in the process. Whereas Cleveland was much more of a technocrat who wanted experts to really dominate the process within the halls of the executive branch. In fact, Cleveland and Allen had a falling out later after the adoption of the executive budget and particularly about the adoption of the executive budget in states like my own in Maryland and in New York. So I think there's, there's an interesting and complicated history that, that led to this process, but which is still revealed now in some of the concerns that we have about how well the budget process works now. You know, for example, maybe one of the problems with the budget process that we have now is that many people don't understand how it works or doesn't, don't understand the nature of budget realities, and maybe we need to spend a little more time encouraging people to learn more and to participate more. Well, terrific observations. Um, you mentioned, of course, in your presentation and a couple of times, of course, that the seminal events of 1921, the enactment of the Budget and Accounting Act, which really changed executive budgeting, followed roughly half a century later with the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act, now, they did lots of things in that second law. The first law was focused mainly on institutional changes, but the legacies of those two laws are, of course, the main institutions involved in this, OMB, GAO, and CBO. And I was very heartened to hear your commentary about OMB and its importance and value in the executive branch. I'm not an impartial observer having twice worked there. 
I'm wondering, you know, and also totally agree with you about your observation about the very bad idea floated in the waning moments of the Trump administration to essentially politicize the entire career staff at OMB, which would have completely changed the culture and probably unbeknownst to the people who proposed it really ruined the agency. So very glad that that has now been shelved. Having said all that, I think your observation that you just went to about a little bit of lack of understanding even in the public, but probably even somewhat institutionally about how, to, how those institutions in the Congress, the Appropriations Committee in particular, and OMB, if they could ever get on the same page in terms of evaluating performance of agencies. There's been a long history of OMB trying to push, not great with great success, different tools to kind of uniformly start looking at some things and say, things are performing well or not well, and also co convince Congress to kind of adopt a little bit the same kind of thinking as they go through their processes. I would say that it hasn't been greatly <laughs> successful. And you know that may be due to the Appropriations Committee just having a different culture. They're obviously much more decentralized in the Congress and they're under different political pressures than the executive branch. But I'm wondering if, if performance review if we could ever, that, that old progressive idea you were talking about that animated so much of the thinking, is it just impossible to get coordinated performance review at the federal level because of the two branches? You know, Jim, I think that's, if I had to pick, you know, the three most important questions about the budget process, that would be one of them. Yeah. And luckily, just yesterday, we had oh. a, a panel on this at that Budget Act Centennial Terrific. Conference. It was a wonderful one. And it featured uh, Bob Shea and Kathy Stack, both OMB people, chaired by Steve Redburn, also from OMB, and Don Moynihan, a professor at Georgetown who's written very insightful work on performance management. So I would highly recommend people to go watch that discussion. If I could maybe summarize that discussion, then add my two cents as well. I think one of the typical observations is that Congress will understandably have a different perspective about how to evaluate programs than people in the executive branch might. But I think your pessimism about the low likelihood of Congress incorporating performance information to their budget decisions is somewhat warranted, but not as much as it was in the past. You know, for example, there was a mention in this panel that Appropriations Committee staff, and when they're writing the reports that accompany appropriations bills, have been using performance information from the executive branch more than they had in the past, and are actually asking questions, more questions, demanding better performance information. And that, I think, is a very good signal. So that, that's one, I think, positive point to take away from this. Another point, though, is that I think it's also up to the executive branch to do more itself. Kathy Stack at that panel mentioned that OMB does a lot of what are called crosscuts, that is, analyses of programs that may range across discretionary, mandatory, and tax spending and across different departments in, in an attempt to try and sift out the programs that aren't working and put more money into the programs that are working. And Sometimes those crosscuts don't see the light of day. <laughs> and it, I think that's unfortunate in that it would be much better for that information to be given to Congress, to be given out to the public. Now, of course, there are sometimes political considerations that keep that information hidden from the public. But go, to go back to the 
William Allen argument about the role of the executive budget. If we spent more time exploring the pros and cons of the current portfolio government programs in a sector of the budget and then helping the public understand what appears to be working, what, where, where we might actually spend more money and provide greater public value, particularly by getting rid of some spending that demonstrably doesn't work, that we'd be better off. Now we have a, we have a legislative framework for that, the GIPRA, the Government Performance and Results Act and the Modernization Act of that, the Evidence for Policy Learning Act. And so there's, there's plenty of statutory guidance from Congress about that. And it's really up to the, each administration to use its powers to do that well. Again, I don't think the Trump administration paid much attention to it. I do hope that the Biden administration, once it gets past this year's legislative scramble, will use some of the authorities and responsibilities in the statutory framework to set us up for the next couple of years. For example, the agencies are supposed to develop new strategic plans. The administration is supposed to document what its cross-agency priority goals are. And those can be used as a way of focusing the attention of Congress on performance. The other point I would make about this, and this was discussed in this panel as well, is that the late Paul Posner and Steve Redburn have advocated for an approach called portfolio budgeting where for example, we, we would take a sector of the budget, let me use health since you're such an expert in that, where you know that you know, we spend a lot of money on health and the outcomes are not as good as we hoped they would be. And we've had some significant improvements in the last decade or so in expanding access, but there are a lot of places where we could still improve health, health outcomes and maybe reduce the rate of growth of spending but we don't exactly know how to do that well right now because there isn't an overall strategic view. And in addition, we have programs separated from each other in their silos, whether discretionary or mandatory or tax preferences. This portfolio review approach would say, let's look at this every four or five years or so and think about whether, for example, we should shift some money away from healthcare services towards the social determinants of health, or whether spending more money on healthcare research might inform healthcare services. Right now, there isn't as much of that kind of coordinated review as there could be. But if you go back to the ideas of the Budget and Accounting Act when it was adopted in 1921, that was the vision. That was the vision that Cleveland had, that you would have some expertise in the executive branch that would go through these existing programs and rationalize them to some extent, or at least propose a rationalization and then let the political process work its will in Congress. And I hope, you know, maybe it's, it's overly optimistic, but I hope that in the next couple of years, we can go back to that vision as we consider particularly how the Congressional Budget Act could be, could be revised. Well, those are terrific points. I, I particularly like your point about using existing authorities. You know, this is, these are not new questions and Congress has passed several laws over the years, you named three, that essentially give the executive branch some authority, not as much as it always wants, but some authority to take a look at these things and start evaluating them in a more serious way. And in some ways, part of the failing is the executive branch itself has its own reticence, its own political checks 
that hold it back from calling it like it sees it, so to speak, on some of these things. And uh, you know, the, the, the end result is some uh, half measures instead of going full bore into some of these things. And you're right about cross-cutting evaluations and portfolio reviews. I mean, there are many programs. There's programs in HHS to train, you know, and advocate for a better supply of practitioners. Many different programs and people evaluate them and so on, but they don't really compare them very often. They're siloed. So a lot of those ideas are particularly relevant to improving performance. I want to take a step back now and ask you a broader, bigger question. You may, uh, you may think, oh boy, this is too big, to, too big to answer. But I mean, part of our question here is we've got the Budget and Accounting Act, we've got the Congressional Budget Act, we've got the two branches, Article I Congress, Article II Executive Branch, but the two may never meet. I mean, there's nothing in our constitutional structure that says and I, people are surprised when I made this point, make this point, that there's nothing in our constitutional structure to say we have to have a budget, so to speak. Now, there's a lot of ad hoc decisions that have to be made. You have to fund the government. You got to keep the agencies operating. You got to collect revenue. That doesn't mean the Congress and the president are on the same page fiscally about what the overall plan is this year or in the next few years or even over the long term. And I think this question of, is there any way for us to move toward a system where somehow a law could pass periodically, not every year, it doesn't have to happen frequently, but maybe every five or 10 years, you know, the stars will line up and the two branches will agree, yeah, we need a fiscal plan, a fiscal framework for the next, you know, period of time. A little bit like the ad hoc agreement of 1990, which was, of course, negotiated really as a five-year agreement between a president and a Congress. But I mean, could that be regularized? Is there a way to get to that? And your idea that I read about some time ago and you've promoted in various articles you've had over the years of a joint budget resolution may, may be one idea to explore there. And I wonder if you want to speak to that at all. Yeah, there, there are a lot of big questions. In really that, big. I know in they're that, too big. That, to that question. No, it's some, okay. Summarize it's okay. it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, Academics like to specialize in the big questions, leave the details to people in government. I <laughs> but so let me go back to your first point, you know, about the fact that we have this system of separated institutions sharing powers, but there's nothing that really forces them to cooperate outside of perhaps outs expectations from outside where once non-cooperation becomes politically damaging for the people in office, they saw it, they decide, well, now let's make a deal. As for example, President Biden said yesterday. Or it could be also that on occasion, presidents or members of Congress say, you know, we're sick of this continual fighting and between the branches, between the parties, and we need to reach a sensible compromise. And of course, that's a harder and harder sit situation to reach given that the parties have become farther and farther apart regarding their own policy preferences. So that's, a, that's a, a challenge right now that's actually more similar to a lot of American history than it was to, for example, during the 50s through the, say, the 80s. Uh, by the way, Steve Redburn and I had a, had a panel at this conference last week, this last week as well, about executive versus legislative relations, particularly focusing on the micro level and micromanagement, earmarks, and so on. So if you're interested in that aspect of it, I'd recommend that, that recorded session. But to get back to your point, your question about the joint budget resolution, that would convert willingly if both members of Congress and the president wanted to go along, 
the concurrent budget resolution that's adopted by Congress now, which is just an exercise of congressional rulemaking, isn't signed by the president to becoming a law. And you know, by and large, you would expect that that would not work at all when there's divided government between the parties. And either, even under unified government, at least in the sense that, for example, we have now where the Democrats at least nominally control the House, Senate, and the president, it's pretty hard to imagine that working well given the differences within the Democratic Party, for example, between moderates and progressives, as I think we'll see in the next couple of months as the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill are worked through. Uh, so there's this general theory of in political science about when you could expect the majority party dominated, it's called conditional party government. And that's based on the majority party being pretty cohesive and having a few votes to play with. Well, in the House, the Democrats don't have many votes to play with. In the Senate, they have none. And there's probably a much more difference of opinion about their policy preferences within the party than has been apparent in the last couple of months. So whether in fact, even Democrats under unified control could reach an agreement with President Biden on a joint budget resolution, I can imagine there'd be reasonable skepticism for that. On the other hand, it would probably be a pretty good idea for the Democrats to do this because it would be easier for them if they could reach agreement on the bottom line, if you will, you know, what they expect the deficit to be, what they expect spending and revenues to be. It would provide them with a framework for then making all these difficult decisions that they'll have to make if they decide to go it alone. Over the longer term, you know, again, a joint budget resolution will work only if members of Congress and presidents want it to work. And that's true for the whole budget process. You know, one could argue that the budget process as written, including the Congressional Budget Act, could work if members of Congress and the president wanted to make it work. That is, if they held to norms such as let's pass the appropriations bills on time. For, unfortunately, that norm has weakened or it's gone. And frankly, I think the, the failure to pass appropriations bills on time has substantial costs to the taxpayer, to citizens, to people working in the government. And it would be much, we'd be much better off as a country if members of Congress could, and the president could resolve to fight it out, but fight it out with a definite ending date, which would be September 30th, the day before the beginning of the fiscal year. So the question then really becomes, if we're gonna improve the budget process, some of this has to do with tweaking it to make it better. And there are certainly ways by which we could change the executive budget process, for example, making apportionment data more readily available rather than forcing Congress to be in the wilderness as they were for a while in the Ukraine security assistance. And Lord knows there are lots of changes that could be made to make the Congressional Budget Act better. But when it really comes down to it, the process is gonna work only if there are strong norms that members of Congress believe that we should have an annual process to look at the big picture of federal government finances and more generally the state of the country and then use the capable analysts in CBO and OMB and the agencies 
to generate information that then can be considered by elected officials while they negotiate. Unfortunately, you know, our political system now is one where getting good faith negotiation is, you know, hard to, hard to expect. I mean, you have the Senate minority leader basically saying that's not something he's very interested in in many cases. He would like to oppose whatever the Democrats suggest. And I'm sure he would say that, that the Democrats are behaving in the same way. Whether that's true or not, I'll leave that up to the eye of the beholder. But if we're gonna to get to the point where the budget process is gonna work, something has to change regarding the norms uh, of how our democratic process works. You know, what happened in January 6th is a signal that we really need to think very strongly about those norms and how to strengthen them. Yeah. Not just in budgeting, but across the whole government. I very much agree with you, Professor Roy, on that point that uh, uh, former CBO director Rudy Penner says in a kind of slightly different context, talking about the fiscal problem generally, that you know the, the process isn't the problem, the problem is the problem. And a little bit of the same sentiment applies to the abuses that one sees in the federal budgeting practices. If they don't want to follow them, they don't follow them, you know, and there's no criminal penalty associated with it. The norms are very important for good governance and hardly any amount of lawmaking is probably going to prevent that. So we do need to kind of restore some semblance of what's good practice for uh, our political processes and, you know, a very good observation on your point. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Can you believe it? Who knew that the Budget and Accounting Act could make the time go so quickly? It was, I have a million more questions for you. So we're going to have to have you back again someday down the road. Maybe we'll have a conversation about with you and others about budget process reforms writ large. But for now, I need to just thank you for your time. Very insightful analysis, terrific history of where this law came from and what it has meant. And I thank the audience for joining us and we'll conclude our session now. Thank you very much, Roy. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.